Good morning, Chatham Community Church. It's wonderful to be with you all today. Uh, as Caitlin said, my name is Zane. I work for InterVarsity at UNC, uh, which is a job that your very own pastor had uh, years ago, uh, and I'm in that role now. And absolutely love it. I love campus ministry. I love working with students. And, and basically what I do is stuff like this. I teach a lot with my students. I help lead small groups and train leaders, uh, and it's such a joy a uh, few other things about me. I'm husband to Kara. Uh, we've been married about five years now. And as of nine months ago, I am father to a beautiful little girl, Nora. I think she's watching right now, so hi, Nora. Um, yeah, you can clap for her. She's really, she's really cute. Um, Kara and I uh, call Chatham Community Church our home. We're in a small group led by Mark and Rachel Matthews, and we love it here, and we are so grateful uh, for the, the home that you guys have provided, the partnership that the church has shown towards us in InterVarsity. And for those reasons, it's, it's an honor to be able to preach with you all today. And it's a really fun series for me to get to preach in because in campus ministry and in my philosophy of ministry in general, community and small groups and caring for the campus is so central to who we are. <clears throat> so when Alex told me that it's a uh, Won't You Be a Neighbor series, <clears throat> I was excited to get to preach. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, uh, and what we're going to see here uh, is essentially a story within a story. So I'm going to read a short introduction to the first story. It's very short. Uh, and then we're going to skip into the second story, and then we'll come back and resolve the first story, uh, because that's the way Mark wrote the story. Um, and so that's what we're going to do today. So if you want to read with me, the words will be on the screen, but we're going to be in Mark 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So just to set the scene so that you know what's going on, Jesus is returning with his disciples from across the Sea of Galilee from the Decapolis. Uh, the Decapolis just means ten cities, Deca, ten, Polis cities, ten cities. It's where Gentiles live. So Jesus has left Galilee where he's from, crossed into the land of uh, the Gentiles, has done some ministry there, has cast out demons. It's a really cool story. You should go read it. It contrasts really well with the end of our story today. Um, and then now he's returning. So he's coming back home to the Jewish people. This, the Galilee is where Jesus is from, where he lives. And he's approached by a synagogue leader named Jairus. Now, because he's a synagogue leader, what that most likely means is that Jairus is a member of the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are simply a party whose um, th their belief is centered around the Word of God, that their expertise is in the law, and that they believe that God will deliver them from whatever oppression they are under because of their obedience to the law. So Jairus is a synagogue leader. He is a leader amongst the party of the Pharisees, and his young daughter is sick, and she's dying, and he's desperate to save her. And he has heard of Jesus' reputation. Remember, this is Jesus' hometown. This is where he's from. He's from this region. So word about him has spread. So Jairus knows that Jesus has been rumored to have power to heal. And so he goes and seeks Jesus out. He falls down at his feet, and he asks him if he will come and heal his daughter. And Jesus agrees. Um, but like I said, what we're going to encounter today is a story within a story. So we're going to come back to Jairus. 
But first, we have to read the second of our two stories and see what it has to teach us. So going back into Mark, starting uh, at the end of verse 24, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So the woman in this passage has been suffering with an issue of bleeding for over a decade. Now, according to Old Testament law, this issue of bleeding is an issue of ritual purity. Essentially, it has made her unclean. And this is something that we, as uh, maybe casual readers of Scripture, sometimes confuse because we associate unclean and sinful. We think that those two things are synonyms, uh, but they aren't. But because we associate those two things, we end up having all kinds of questions about this passage, like why should someone be considered sinful for something they can't control, like an issue of bleeding? And then we usually end up in our discussions of a passage like this with some vague sense that Jesus is willing to be made unclean in order to help the dirty and broken people. Uh, And that's not a horrible interpretation. Uh, It's a fine message, uh, but it's not really what's going on because unclean and sinful are not synonyms. That's not really what's happening. Unclean doesn't equal sinful. Unclean means that you are outside of the system of ritual purity and that in your current state, you are unfit to go and sacrifice and worship at the temple. You can be made unclean by all sorts of everyday things, and most of the time there's a simple ritual washing and then a, and then a waiting period, and then you're considered clean again, and you can go back to the temple. But in this story, the issue that we run into is that this woman has been suffering with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. It won't stop. So there's no point where she can go through the washing, be made, wait, do her waiting, and then be made clean again. In this story, because her issue has been ongoing, she's not only suffering physically, but she's been prevented from taking part in the assembly of God's people. She is excluded from temple worship because of this issue. Because her bleeding won't stop, she can't complete that simple ritual and be allowed to rejoin the assembly. She has not been able to worship with her own people for years. And out of respect for her faithful friends, she's probably experienced very little physical contact throughout her suffering because if you touch someone who's unclean, it's almost like you catch it. It's kind of like cooties when you were in school. It's like, oh, I caught your unclean. And again, it doesn't mean that you're sinful, but it means that you now have to go through the process of being made clean in order to worship again. And so whenever she hugs someone or shakes their hand, they have to go through a cleansing ritual in order to rejoin the assembly. So you would have to imagine that after a while, 
her friends probably just didn't hug her as much. People probably started to keep their distance when they saw her coming. Not because she was some untouchable sinner, but simply because it was inconvenient. It added an extra step to your day to be able to participate in the process of worship. This woman has probably been keeping her distance from people for quite a while. But she hears that Jesus is coming. And it lights a fire inside of her. And she resolves, if I can just get to him, if I can just push through the crowd and touch the edge of his cloak, then I might be able to be healed. So she does it. She pushes her way through the crowd. She reaches Jesus. She touches the edge of his cloak. And immediately she's healed. She's healed in that moment. And that could have been the end of it, but Jesus responds. And and there's kind of this weird Jedi moment in this passage, right, where Jesus feels the power go out of him. And like, I don't know if you know what that means. I don't. Uh, I, I guess it's just a Jesus thing. But he feels power leave his body, and he stops in the middle of the crowd, and he turns to his disciples, who are probably the closest to him, and he says, who touched me? And they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about, man? Do you see all of these people? Everybody touched you, right? Like, it's not oh, we're walking in a nice single file line and there's just a bunch of people following. There's throngs of people crowding around him, pushing in against him. And he stops and he says, who touched me? They're like, everyone, what are you talking about? And he says, no, I know that someone specifically touched me. And he continues to look for her. And so now the woman is starting to probably sweat a little bit, feel a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus is like, who touched me? Who touched me? Who touched me? And, and there, he's not satisfied by the everyone answer. And so she's like, oh no, I bet he felt me touch him. And maybe she thinks, well, what if he's upset? Because I was unclean. So if I, I touched him, then maybe he becomes unclean and he's a great teacher. So she's probably sweating a little bit, not wanting to do this. But she falls at his feet and she confesses the whole truth. She tells the whole crowd that she's been bleeding for 12 years. She confesses that she has been excluded from the assembly, that she has had to keep her distance, that she has been isolated because of her condition. Now, it's reasonable to assume that there are people in the crowd who know her. This is her town, probably. It's unlikely that she traveled from some great distance. Remember, she hears Jesus is coming, and immediately she goes to find him. That's probably the case for lots of people in the crowd. So they know her. They've seen her. They know the issue that she's been dealing with. And in front of all of these people, Jesus declares that she has been healed, that her bleeding has stopped and that she has been made clean. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he stop on his way to going to heal the daughter of a religious leader? Why does he seek out the woman after she's already been healed? It's because he wants the crowd to know what happened. Not because he wants to be famous. In fact, you're going to see at the end of this passage that he definitely doesn't want to be famous. Most of the time when he performs a great miracle, he tells them, don't tell anyone. But in this case, he makes a scene to say that she has been healed. Why? Because he wants the crowd to see and he wants them to know that her position has been restored, that she can rejoin the assembly, that her faith has made her clean. He wants the crowd to know that they should welcome her back. 
And if I'm being honest, the churches that I grew up in seem to spend more time deciding and debating about who didn't get to be a part of the club than we did trying to welcome people in. As Christians, we've become quite good at determining who should not be included amongst the assembly. But Jesus shows us here that he is about offering restoration so that even those who have been excluded can be welcomed back. The people that we would see as unclean are exactly those who Jesus came to restore. When I look at the church today, I'm disheartened by how much it seems like we're motivated by fear. We draw battle lines and perceive people as a threat to our values and our way of life. But what if God's not scared of the world that he died to save? What if the people that we are trying to keep our distance from are the very people that Jesus came to restore? What if loving our neighbor means that we spend less time deciding who doesn't get to be a part of the kingdom and more time inviting them to experience the restoration of Jesus? I'm not suggesting that sin isn't something we should take seriously as Christians. It, It is. But what if instead of closing ranks around Jesus of forming a huddle so that no one else could get in, we cleared a path so that those who are desperate can come and touch the edge of his cloak, that they might be restored, that they they might be invited to rejoin the assembly. Are there people in your life who you have decided should not have access to the assembly of God's people? Are there folks that you've decided you should keep your distance from? When Jesus says, who touched me, Who is the last person that you think he could be talking about? Surely they would never come seek Jesus. Surely they would never be so bold as to try to touch his cloak. Surely they wouldn't try to push through the crowds in order to have access to him. Who's that person for you? Because maybe, just maybe, they are the people who Jesus wants to restore. Maybe they are the ones who have reached a point in their life where they are willing to push through the crowd just to try and touch the corner of his robe to experience healing and restoration. Our first point today has to revolve around this idea of what are we doing to try to keep people out? And how is Jesus inviting us to welcome them back in, to clear a path so that those who desire might be restored. Now, I told you that our passage today is a story within a story, so let's return back to Mark and finish it off. Mark chapter chapter 5, verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished, and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. 
So I told you that Jesus doesn't always make a show of his healing, and you see that at the end of this passage. But I want to go back to the beginning. This exchange uh, is pretty interesting at the beginning because people from the household of Jairus come and tell him that his daughter has died, and they suggest that he shouldn't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus overhears them, and he tells Jairus not to be, in sta- not to be afraid and instead to believe. Now, frankly, for most of us, that is just a convenient line that keeps the story moving. But when I was studying this, I, I, I began to question, what if Jesus had just agreed with them? What if he had just said, yeah, you're right, this isn't a concern for me any longer? And I know that that sounds harsh. You're like, come on, Zane, like, she's a 12-year-old girl, she's died, Jesus has the power to heal her. Of course he's going to. But, but think about it. There were plenty of people who died during the ministry of Jesus. He didn't heal everyone uh, who was sick. He didn't raise everyone from the dead who died during his three years of ministry. His primary purpose wasn't to heal as many people as possible in three years. And in fact, we often see Jesus moving away from crowds who came to seek him do miracles. He, he, He retreats from them. Now you might say, okay, well, maybe Jesus is ready for people to know that he has the power to raise people from the dead. But look at the passage. He seems incredibly committed to the idea that he doesn't want people to know what he can do. Maybe you could argue that he specifically wants Peter and James and John to know what he's capable of. And I would agree with you that Peter's realization and confession that Jesus is the Messiah is actually the central point of the book of Mark. When Peter confesses that you are the Messiah, the entire book of Mark turns. It's the center point. It's the, hang, it's the, like, the, the mantelpiece of the book. But it doesn't happen until chapter 8. This is chapter 5. Peter doesn't see Jesus raise this girl from the dead and say, you're the Messiah. He does it two chapters later. Honestly, the only logical conclusion that I can come up with is that Jesus is moved to act because of his compassion for Jairus. And, And don't get it twisted. This is an incredibly tricky situation for Jesus. Raising a little girl from the dead has potential to cause all sorts of problems for him. And it even threatens to throw his entire ministry off course. But his compassion compels him to act. How do we choose to act when caring for our neighbor means coming face to face with their grief and their emotional burdens? What do we do when caring for our neighbors might be a distraction from our own goals and our own ambitions? What do we do when loving our neighbors gets messy? Next weekend, I have the honor of officiating my sister's wedding. And later this summer, I'm officiating two more weddings for students of mine who are graduating. And to be honest, doing two student weddings back to back is a bit tricky for me because usually the nice thing about doing weddings is you write one sermon and you just kind of use that sermon at every wedding. You put in personal details, but you don't got to change it because no one's at the same. Like the, the audience is totally different. The message is good. It's why we should care about marriage. It's great. Uh, but when you do two student weddings back to back, four weeks apart, and like half of the attendees are the same people, you, you can't do that. <laughs> um, and, and that's tricky because it's going to create some work, but also I like my wedding message. <laughs> I think it's good. It's based on the idea that the gospel models for us what true love is supposed to look like. And through that lens, 
we learn that love, true love, is sacrifice without self-awareness. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we are told that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. He wasn't thinking about what we could do for him in exchange. He didn't die to give us one more chance to be good people. Jesus died because his love for us compelled him to. When I was in college, my girlfriend and now wife uh, were making decisions about where we were going to go after college. And I had been hired by InterVarsity, and I had gotten sent to Appalachian State in Boone, and my girlfriend was deciding uh, which graduate program she wanted to attend, App State or UNC Greensboro. Now, I told her that I didn't want to influence her choice, that I wanted her to go wherever she felt, she felt like she should go. But I also told her that I didn't really want to date long distance. I had tried it once before, and I decided I wasn't any good at it. So, of course, about a week later, she tells me that she's decided to go to UNC Greensboro and that she doesn't think we should break up. Now, if you weren't paying attention, that wasn't one of the options. <laughs> but that's what she told me. So I spent some time thinking about it. I ended up in a conversation with my InterVarsity staff worker who was mentoring me at the time. And I told him that I had decided that I was going to agree to it. I was going to date long distance because... I was going to love her like Jesus, and that's what Jesus would do. He would sacrifice. And I was so proud of myself for making a choice to love like Jesus. And he looked me square in the face, and he said, that's not love, you idiot. <laughs> he said, you don't get to feel self-righteous about how much you are sacrificing for someone else and then call it love. Love is sacrifice without keeping score. And I think that's what is going on in this passage from Mark. It's costly for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. It's a drain on his time. It invites loads of suspicion. Think about all the questions that people are going to have. You didn't really raise someone from the dead. She, was, she wasn't really dead. Jesus even tells people in the beginning, don't be afraid, she's asleep. And they're like, no, she's dead. And then he raises her from the dead, and they're probably like, well, maybe she was asleep. I don't think that he could really do that. You're going to invite suspicion you attract crowds and crowds of people, and it threatens his ultimate purpose. But in that moment, when he sees the faith of Jairus, his compassion moves him to action. He doesn't think about the cost associated with loving his neighbor. He just chooses to act out of love. Are we quick to love without taking time to count the cost? Now, I'm not trying to be unreasonable here. There are certainly priorities that we must consider when it comes to loving and serving those around us. For me, I have to consider that if something I'm doing means being unable to serve my family, then I might be required to say no. Some of us have established boundaries around certain relationships in our life because past experiences have taught us that those boundaries are required for our own health and our own safety. I'm not telling you to just disregard those things, but examine your heart. When you are moved to compassion, are you quick to serve or are you more likely to find an excuse? When you see someone in need, are you quick to meet that need or do you immediately become aware of the cost that it might incur? When caring for someone becomes hard and messy and it means confronting their grief and sitting with them during the pain, do you sit down or instead do you offer an encouraging word and look for the door? 
The gospel shows us love on display, a Savior who was compelled by his love for us to die in our place. And he invites us to take up our cross and follow him, to die to ourselves so that we might experience true life. And over the years, I've come to understand that dying to myself means more than just turning away from my old sinful patterns. It also means spending less time thinking about me and instead choosing to think about how I could serve others. The Bible says this, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be, or not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not standing up here today telling you that the only way to love people is to serve until you have been run ragged and have nothing left to give. I'm not telling you that the keys to the kingdom of God are total and utter self-neglect. But honestly, the fact that I have to offer so many caveats shows just how contrary this idea of love is in our culture and within our own sinful hearts. I I work with students all the time. And frankly, I don't think that this is just a younger generation problem. This idea of like self-help culture where my primary concern is how can I care for myself And in every situation, and every relationship, when things get hard, we start to wonder, well, maybe I just need to back away from that. I can only be involved in things that are life-giving. I I understand. I'm not telling you that you should ignore that. You, You need to think about your health and your boundaries and what's appropriate. But do you spend more time thinking about yourself than you do other people? Because if that's true, then maybe there's something off according to what Scripture teaches. Maybe those of us who are connected to the true source of life should be more equipped and more able to go and serve others without worrying about being constantly drained because we know where our nourishment, our water, the water of life comes from. I'm committed to sharing with you the Word of God, and on this matter, it's pretty plain. Loving your neighbor means loving sacrificially. The very gospel that we believe, that we cling to for our hope, points us to this fact. We are God's people, and that means that we should be trying with all our might to help people who want to encounter Jesus be welcomed into the assembly. And when we encounter them in the midst of their need and their struggle and their mess, We should serve. We should love. Chatham Community Church, my challenge to you is love your neighbor. Let's pray. Uh, God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the ways that you challenge us. Uh, God, it's hard, though. Uh, It's hard. It It feels like, okay, great, like that's, Maybe some of us even feel inspired and we're like, yeah, I want to go and love and serve more and think less about myself. But like tomorrow's coming (laughs) and and then it's going to be a lot easier to turn inward, to think, to be counting the cost always. 
And so God, we pray that we would be empowered by your spirit. We're grateful that your love for us has already compelled you to pay the price, that we are not, uh, we are not uh, going to stand before you and be afraid of, of how well we loved our neighbor because we know how well you loved your neighbor. But God, we want to be empowered to do what you did, to be like you, to be disciples who want to do what you did for the reasons that you did them. So God, I pray that you would strengthen us and empower us and fill us with your spirit, that we might welcome those who are far off, that we might clear a path, that they could come and touch the corner of your robe. God, I pray that we would be moved by compassion to serve, not just thinking about how we might be served, that we might be motivated by those around us to love, to love sacrificially, and to not count the cost. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.